Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And welcome to Cornerstone Church this morning. Uh, my name's Eddie. I'm one of the leaders here at Cornerstone uh, Liverpool. And uh, yeah, it's just it's so good to have you here with, here with us this morning uh, over the summer. Um, we, um, as Michael said earlier, we're working through a short series in 2 Peter. Um, so if you do have your Bibles, please uh, turn there. Uh, the screens will be, uh, <laughs> the words will be up on the screen um, at the, uh, when we read through it. But if you turn there now already, that'd be good. We're going to be in chapter two. Over the past couple of weeks, uh, Sam and Ben have worked through chapter one for us. And we've heard how Peter is writing uh, to the church to remind them of what they have received and what they've been called to in their faith. Peter has encouraged them to remain steadfast in this way of life and to look ahead with an eternal perspective, knowing that the future glory of this faith is not something futile and worthless, but is promised and confirmed by God because of Jesus. The truth of what they have heard has changed them, and Peter, even at the end of his life, is looking to shepherd this church to encourage them to continue in the midst of trial and difficulty. Peter's love for this church is evident in what he writes and his understanding of the eternal importance of what he has taught and his brothers and sisters have believed is clear. Peter has run the race, he's fought the good fight and that is the legacy that he wants for the believers that he is writing to as well. And throughout the first chapter, we've heard Peter allude to the fact that God's word has always been subjected to to changes by people who either forget the truth or willingly alter it. Peter is showing his love for these people and doing what a good teacher and leader should by warning them, warning them of deception, of the sin that can affect them. And even that deception can be within the community of believers. Peter's been around the block. He's seen this, he knows the pitfalls and trials that they'll face because he's experienced them himself. And now as we get to chapter two, Peter delivers a clear and stark warning to the church of what the believers should be aware of. I'm just gonna pray and then we'll get into the passage. Father God, we thank you so much that that we have your word that is true. We thank you, Lord, um, that yeah, we can know that and we can understand that. Please help us to, to hear you speak to us. Uh, Father, help us believe that what we are hearing this morning from your word is true and help it to change us. Help it to grow our affection for you and for Jesus and the work that he has done. And yeah, Father, we pray, Lord, that that moves us uh, to do the work that you have called us to. Amen. So 2 Peter, verse 1. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Peter's warning starts out with a jolt for the, for the community of the church. He explains that false teachers will be among them at some point. It's not a maybe or hopefully they won't. There will be false teachers among you, he says. And if you think about a time when maybe you've been struggling or anxious, and then somebody comes in and tries to give some advice 
It's usually me. And they say something, don't they? They're actually, they put their foot in their mouth and it brings more anxiety and worry. I recall a time when I was stuck in a lift with a couple of colleagues and, and there was two other ladies in the lift with us. It was a hot day and, and clearly one of the ladies was very anxious about being confined in this small space. And I said something just about the temperature in the lift and it made a massive, it was a massive mistake. I saw it instantly on her face as she realized the reality of what was going on. She's like, actually, it brings into focus the reality of the situation. And I imagine this is what the church is experiencing as Peter says this. They feel the reality of the situation. They're in the midst of a lot of difficulty. It's going on around them. It's not just going to be happening around them. Peter says it's going to be among you within the community of the people that you love and trust. But this is the right and loving thing for Peter to do, to warn his people that they need to be aware of false teachers. The church needs to be ready and expectant for these people to come. These people are going to be prominent and influential people in their community who will secretly and subtly bring destructive heresies. There's the potential for this enclosed community, isn't there? Because there's so much opportunity for it to occur as people spend time together in every area of life. As people talk and share, advice is given and taken, it can be so easy for people to shape and word wrong teaching so that it sounds good and true. We need to be aware of this ourselves, don't we? How, people are, how are people encouraging and advising me? Does it match with God's word and teaching? Is it good and true according to God? But these false teachers, Peter says, are going to bring more blatant lies and heresies when they can. In verse 1, it says they're going to even deny the master who bought them, the one who is the focus of their faith. More than being the focus of their faith, the master who they denied, Jesus, was the sacrificial payment to bring them into their faith. Jesus bought the lives of those who believe in him when he humbled himself to be like us. He willingly obeyed God, even though he was perfect and innocent, and he died on the cross. Jesus paid with his life to buy the life of those who believe in him. He paid the debt for all our sins, past, present, and future. That's the greatest news. My sins have been paid for. My debt is cleared. And even greater still, the master who paid that debt when he died, he defeated death. He came back to life and he sits in the presence of God now so that I can be in relationship with him. If that is true and somebody fully believes that is true, then why would you ever deny that master? You couldn't do it. But these false teachers, they understand. They're not changed. They don't believe. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And this sin brings with it just punishment from God. And they bring that upon themselves. The warning Peter is giving is not confined to those proclaiming the false teachings, but he warns of the impact and influence it'll have on the people around them. In verse 2, it says that many, sadly, will follow their sensuality, will follow their lies and teachings. See, when people like the sound of what they are being taught, they'll follow that teacher and teaching, and they will adjust their lives accordingly. It might sound 90% the same as the truth, but that 10%, it might just make their life a little bit easier. It sounds more attractive. It suits the idols that they have, maybe the sins that they had in their previous life and still hold on to. 
people are tempted and drawn in to the lies that they hear. How sad to know that people who do this, bring these teachings, they understand what they are doing and they have no love for the people that it is affecting. It may be for short-term gain that these people are proclaiming these lies. Here in our passage, it talks about sensuality. So there's a sexual nature to the lies and deceit that they are teaching. But the effect for themselves and the people who follow them, it's not short-term, it's eternal. We need to be aware of this because the damage done now can be bad, but the eternal damage, the eternal effect is so much worse. The sin and greed of these teachers and their self-satisfaction is built to exploit others. Jesus called his followers to love one another. This denial of the master and exploitation of others is totally opposite to what a believer of Christ is meant to be. But these are prominent teachers and probably leaders in the church. If they're in teaching positions, they have the ability and the influence to speak to so many people, don't they? The responsibility that they have is weighty. The responsibility of leadership is weighty because of the influence it brings and they use it for personal gain. I'm sure many of us are aware of false teaching and dangers that we as the church need to be aware of and that we don't fall into. I'm sure most people have heard of the prosperity gospel, that God will provide material blessing. That's all God's for. That's what they proclaim. The name it and claim it movement, that we have power in our words to convert our desires into reality. It's not blessings from God, it's what we want, it's what we desire. And super grace movement, that we can sin, that we can sin as much as we want and there's no punishment because God is gracious. The outcomes of these sound really good, don't they? They sound attractive. It'd make my life a whole lot easier if any of these were true. They feed into my desires, my sinful desires. But these teachings, they are futile, exploitative, damaging, and destructive in the lives of the people who follow them, but sadly seem to be very beneficial for those teaching them. It's clear just from these few verses why Peter is making the church aware of the danger of false teachers and what they could do to the community of believers. He loves his church and he hates the sin that they bring. He wants the church to be steadfast and its influence to be greater than that of the false teachers. So to encourage them, he reminds the church of the character and sovereignty of God. If we look at verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
We see two parts of God's character, his loving protection of his people and his just punishment on those who despise his authority. This helps to give a more complete understanding of God's character to the church. Likely the false teachings they will become aware of will select one aspect of God's character to promote. And that part of his character will give excuse for the lies and the false teachings to become reality and lived out. Again, if we think about some of those um, teachings that we can be aware of, in the past, in recent history, there's been a teacher who's promoted that God is love. He is fully loving. He loves everyone and will not punish. But this admits that God is just and jealous and is a jealous and angry God to those who sin against him. Again, super grace, he is all about grace. He'll forgive no matter what you do. You can sin even intentionally, and it's okay. But these false teachings pick up on one part of his character, and they leave out everything else. And those two examples that I've given, there's no punishment for sin. At times, it's right to focus on those aspects that God is loving, that God is gracious, but for teaching and doctrine to be fully built around one and only part of that is dangerous. But Peter in these verses gives clear examples of God's punishment of sin. Where his authority has been despised and people have turned against him for their own desire and gain, God doesn't turn a blind eye, but he acts justly. Now, the examples that we see in the passage, we see him wipe out the world. We see him bring cities to ashes. He's not going to do that. We, don't, we won't see that happening in our time. But we can be certain that those who sin, who deny God and are unrepentant, will be punished in the time of judgment when Christ returns. Sinners will be condemned to chains of gloomy darkness. They will, be, they will not be spared and will be condemned to extinction. God will justly act in this way to keep sinners under punishment until that day of judgment if they are unrepentant if we are unrepentant of our sin this isn't something that we should be pleased about or celebrate at this time those souls they'll be lost forever they'll never know the joy and love that we that we receive from god as his people we need to be aware that those lost souls could be people that we love dearly our family our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. We must see the need of these people to hear the truth of who God is. We don't want them to despise his authority. We do want them to repent of their sin and receive the gift of grace that he offers. I wonder, do we feel that burden? Do we understand that urgency to tell those people that we love and that we live alongside that this is what they really need? If we believe the Bible is true, the word of God, we believe this judgment that awaits them who are unrepentant, unrepentant, and at the time of judgment, it is right for God to punish them. But while we have opportunity, we must be doing his work and be on mission. We don't celebrate lost souls, do we? We celebrate souls who are born for God. We also see God's goodness to his people in this passage. To those souls he has saved, we see his love and protection through trials and difficulty. Noah, when he was alive, he was living in a time of wickedness. It says in Genesis that the wickedness of man was great on all the earth. 
All around them were people who did what pleased them. Their sinful desires of their heart were the drivers for how they lived and acted. But it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a man who knew God, who lived a godly life and proclaimed the truth of God. He wasn't perfect, but God loved him. What was God's action to Noah, the herald of righteousness? It says God preserved Noah, but didn't spare the ancient world. There was protection for him. His heart was kept in line with God's, even though the wickedness of the world was all around him. Even though lies and myths were turning people to their own ways, God kept Noah and protected him from being wiped out. We also see the example of Lot, again surrounded by the sins of the world, slap bang in the middle of wicked and distressing sexual sin. Verse 8 even says that Lot's righteous soul was tormented because of the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That really stands out to me. Is that, is that the same for us? Are we tormented? Are our souls pained when we hear of the sin going on around us? Or are we relative, relatively accepting of people's sinful behaviors because it's culturally acceptable? Do we accept it or are we pained to hear the sin affecting people's lives? But for Lot, God was there. And God, uh, so in Lot's situation, God rescued him. He said he rescued righteous Lot. Lot was far from perfect again. He wasn't sinless. And he didn't come through the whole situation unscathed or undamaged. But we can understand that Lot loved God. Even in his imperfection, he was counted as righteous. Peter is calling the church to remain steadfast in their faith in God, in their love for him. Yes, the people of the church will sin as they are tempted by the sinfulness around them. Sadly, that's our human nature, isn't it? We're weak. But because of the salvation received through faith in Christ and the continued repentance of our sin, the people of the church are counted as righteous because of Jesus. That is true for you this morning if Jesus is your savior. You are proclaimed righteous because of Jesus, even though you will fall to temptation and sin. One commentator wrote this, like Lot, I have also been declared, been declared righteous, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And at the end of days, I will be proclaimed righteous because I have been united to the righteous one, no person is proclaimed righteous apart from Christ, but all who are, who are in him are declared righteous along with him. This is how Lot could be righteous even in the midst of his sin. We have been rescued from the eternal punishment of our sins. This is certain, it says in the Bible. We are united to Christ and will be counted as righteous at the time of judgment. We will face trials and difficulty now. That will happen. We will feel like a minority in our society and surrounded by the sin of the world. We feel that pressure, don't we? But the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from those trials. He sees his people in their need. We've just gone through the book of Exodus. He saw the people in their need in, when they were in slavery in Egypt. We won't be left to suffer and struggle through them alone. But our faith in God has to remain 
We need to be steadfast and godly, to be set apart from the world around us. Unlike those who despise the authority of God, we must willingly submit to his authority, recognizing the love and protection that that brings and is found there for his people. Our character is important. We've seen that in chapter one already. How we behave and act, it sets us apart from people around us. We can understand a lot about people from their character, can't we? And as believers, our character will change and develop as our heart is changed by God. So Peter again uses character in this passage to describe and help the church to understand somebody and people. This time he looks at the false teachers. So if we look at verse 10, the second half of verse 10, it says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with him and restrained the prophet's madness. So we've seen earlier in the chapter that these false teachers, they're greedy and exploitative. And as we see in these verses, they don't make for any better reading, do they? These people are bold and willful as they blaspheme. They're irrational, creatures of instinct, ignorant. They revel in deception. They are adulterous, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. If you knew that there was somebody in your community who was like that, I'm sure you'd want to keep your distance from them, wouldn't you? They sound dangerous. And especially if they are people who are in roles of influence and responsibility if they're church leaders and teachers. Again, Peter warns there will be times when these people with this character will be part of the community of the church. In verse 13, it says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They're going to look like us. They're not going to have two heads. They will look like us. They will generally act like us, but their hearts their desires, they're not going to be like ours. Now, I'm not calling for you to judge everybody here. I'm not. The person sitting next to you this morning, don't look at them and think that this is who they are. But we need to be aware, don't we? Got to be wise and have eyes to see that there are people like this. And we need to do this and be aware for our own safety and the safety of the people of the community of the church. Throughout the chapter, Peter uses strong language, and it's good for him to do that. He understands the danger that these people pose to the church, and he considers not just the short-term damage, 
but the eternal implications of their words and actions. We've got to be wary. We must have the character that we are called to as believers. In chapter one, Sam went through um, the uh, qualities and characteristics that we as believers should have. And it's not at all like the characteristics and qualities that we see here in this passage. The contrast is clear. False teachers, they blaspheme, they do wrong, and they are deceptive. As believers, we're called to be virtuous, to do what is biblically and faithfully right and good. False teachers are ignorant of what they teach. They don't understand it. They say it from their own understanding, their own will. Believers are called to be knowledgeable, to know the truth of what we believe, to know the truth of God. False teachers are irrational, instinctive, insatiable. They go in their emotions and feelings. We as believers, we still have those emotions and feelings, but we're called to be self-controlled. False teachers entice unsteady souls. They have eyes full of adultery. Believers are called to godliness and brotherly affection. And false teachers are deceptive, greedy, and exploitative. They they are hateful and sinful. As believers, we are called to be loving. Peter calls us in chapter one to be diligent in practicing the qualities that we see there so that we don't fall and become like the false teachers. We've received so much because of our faith in Christ. Our perspective should be the same as Peter's, one of eternity, that we have received so much already in this life and we will receive and be part of something amazing in the eternal kingdom of God. The judgment for falling and having the opposite qualities is seen in verse 12, to be caught and destroyed in destruction. This is not what we've been called to. Chapter one, verse three tells us we've been granted by divine power to all things related to life and godliness. The false teachers are centered on everything that leads to sin and death, and they're trying to promote it in the church to those who hear about receiving life. But it can be easy for them to do this, to twist and change subtly the truths and promises of God. But what they are teaching comes not from God. What they are teaching draws people away from God. And rather than the freedom that they falsely proclaim, by ignoring the true boundaries set out by God's word and law, they offer a life of continued slavery to their sensual passions and sinful desires. We read from verse 17, it says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. 
Peter's declaring these false teachers as fools, led by their base instinctual desires. They have heard and know the truth of God, but it doesn't change them. Instead, they use it against God and his people. They seek those who are vulnerable, who are young in faith, and those who are completely lost. They offer and entice them in with part truths and lies, don't they? People want the freedom that is offered to them by this incorrect teaching. It sounds attractive and enticing, but the false freedom is actually bonding them to the, uh, bonding those followers to those teachers and their own sin. See at the end of this passage that Peter uses a proverb to give a picture of what these teachers are like. In verse 22, they said the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing itself, returns to wallow in the mire. In this culture, in this context, those two animals, the dog and the pig, they are the lowest, most disgusting animals with horrific dirty habits. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you get covered in filth and dirt and you go and get yourself cleaned up, you put on fresh clothes, you don't instantly go back and get yourself covered in dirt again, do you? It's foolish, it's stupid. Again, if you're ill, and your body kind of rejects that, gets that poison, that sickness out, your first intention isn't to stick it right back in. It is vile and it is foolish. So why then do we see these false teachers knowing from the scriptures that freedom from the dirtiness of sin is found in faith in God, that righteousness is found in living a life with Jesus? Why do we see them returning to their lives of sin and slavery? They look to their false concept of freedom from God's rules, don't they? It's because of their sinful nature. The sinful nature of man is to push back against God's authority and to think that our own understanding and our own authority is better. Man believes the lie from Satan that our own authority and desires are more suited to our lives than God's authority. We desire freedom from laws and rule and we want our own power to lead our life in the way which we perceive to be good and right for us. This is false freedom, isn't it? It's futile. It's short-lived satisfaction found in our worldly desires. True freedom from sin is only found in Jesus. He defeated sin at the cross and he offers that freedom that he won there to all who believe in him. It's a free gift of grace from God by his divine power to give life. As we receive life from God, he rescues us, and we find escape from corruption and our sinful desires. It's not freedom and grace to indulge our sinful desires, but freedom and grace to be partakers in the divine nature. Unlike the false teachers, we don't deny the master who bought us. We honor and proclaim the price that he paid. We don't despise his authority, of the one who rescued us, we trust in that authority and rest in the knowledge of God's sovereignty. We hold on to the promise of everlasting freedom in Christ, knowing that our chains of slavery to sin have been destroyed, and we seek to steadfastly live in our freedom, believing that at the time of judgment, we will be seen as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Peter's calling the church to know and live right in these truths. This is what will protect them from the false teachings of the people in their community. And we need to do the same, don't we?
So as we close, there's some practical applications maybe that we can put into practice that will help us be protected from these false teachings. We need to be in the word of God, don't we? We know that. That's a simple thing to say, but we need to know our Bible. We need to know what is true. If we know the truths of God that are spoken by him, when lies and deceptions are spoken, we're more able to combat them with the truth. We're more able to stand firm. And we need to know what we believe to stand firm. We need to read regularly, pray through the verses and passages, memorize what we read, and we need to use it, speak to others, speak it to ourselves for encouragement, for a reminder of the goodness and the truth of who God is. Speaking and sharing something is a great way to learn as well, to remember it ourselves. We need to be aware of what has been said in church and at our gospel communities. We need to question it and compare it against the Bible Ask questions about what is being said of those who are teaching it. Don't do it in an accusing manner. Do it in a manner that is good and right to understand. Dialogue and discussion about what we are hearing and learning. It's good to deepen our understanding, isn't it? We need to be willing to let God change us as well and change our understanding. We can hold on to beliefs. Beliefs are things that we idolize things that we've been taught previously or that come from our sinful past. We need humility to let go of these and let God show us that they are wrong to change us and make us more like him. Finally, we need to live out the qualities Peter lists in chapter one. If we are doing these, we are being changed to be more Christ-like. And if we are more Christ-like, it changes the people, it changes the people of our church. It has an effect to encourage them to be more Christ-like themselves. And it sets us apart from those around us that seek to destroy God's church. So chapter, uh, to verse 10 in chapter one says, therefore brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we have received. That's what we are going to. Let us hold firm to the belief and the salvation that we have in Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that we do have the truth of your word. We thank you that we have the true teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, and that our salvation is in him. Help us to see when false teachers come. Help us to know that what they are proclaiming is not true, is not of you, but is of their own desires. Father, protect us as a church, we pray. Keep us safe from the dangers of the sin of the world around us. We thank you, Lord, that we do, we are saved, but help us to know our sin as well. Help us to be repentant. Help us to come to you, Father, when we are sinning, knowing that you are a good and gracious God, and Father, we just thank you. You're a God who loves us, who does protect his people and brings us through trials and difficulty. Amen.